This podcast is made possible by Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school, with locations across the United States and online. Become a recognized expert and join the wine community and gain the confidence to do what you love with the winner of the WSET and Riedel Global Wine Educator of the Year Award. Listeners of this podcast enjoy a special 5% discount on any Napa Valley Wine Academy classes when they use the code NVWA podcast at the time of enrollment. That code again is NVWA podcast. For more information on all the courses offered, visit NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. That's NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. For me, I think it's really the fact that we can make a big splash. We can really make a bold statement with these wines from Arizona because nobody expects anything from us. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, it's the stories behind wine, a podcast dedicated to the stories, people, places, and history that influence the world of wine. I'm Christian Ogenfuss, and in this episode, I sit down with Lisa Street, a Wyoming native who fell in love with wine while working alongside her uncle on his small vineyard and winery in the wilds of Western Washington. She shares her unique story about how she ended up going from working for one of the wine industry behemoths, E&J Gallo Winery, to making wine in the high desert of Arizona. This is Lisa's story. My name's Lisa Street, and I'm a winemaker at Eridus Wine Company. So Lisa, where did you first get the inspiration or desire to work in the wine business? Well, I started out just helping my uncle out at his farm where he has just a few rows of vines planted. And that's in southwestern Washington. I had moved out to Portland and didn't really know what I was doing and didn't really know anybody. So I wound up spending a lot of time hanging out with my uncle. And we'd put up bird netting, we'd prune things, sucker things. And then in the fall, we'd make wine. And he's a pretty avid hobbyist. So he was also purchasing grapes from all sorts of areas around him. So down in the Willamette Valley, Riesling and Pinot. And over in eastern Washington, he was getting Syrah and Cab. And so just making all these different wines and like tiny lots with him, I eventually realized that it was something that people could do for a job. So that's really how I started. Where in western Washington? Columbia Gorge area or... He's actually in near Centralia. Okay. And known for its wine region? No, not really. There are a few small wineries there, but it's cooler than the Willamette Valley and has that same sort of rainy, misty thing going on. So he rarely ever gets anything too ripe on his farm, but it doesn't really matter if you're having fun doing it and if you like drinking the products, which he certainly does. So. <laughs> So let's rewind maybe a little bit. And you grew up in Wyoming, not Washington, correct? Right. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the early years in your life. What did it look like in the early days in Wyoming for you? I'm from a town that's, I guess, the third largest town in Wyoming, which really isn't saying too much. I think it was about 20,000 people when I was growing up. And we lived on the edge of town in a suburb. The town itself was really built up in the 70s when there was a coal boom. So a lot of people moved in. And before that, it was a railroad town. So I had a pretty standard childhood, just walking to school, going to school, coming home, 
hanging out outside with my friends. And I mean, it was a nice place to grow up. But So did you ever think at that time that you would want to do something with agriculture or wine related? No, my parents didn't really drink. And I just never really thought about wine as something that people made. It was just a thing in the store in a bottle. I never really thought about that. My grandmother has a farm, so we would often go and visit her in rural South Dakota. But they were raising sheep and growing lentils and things like that. So it wasn't really even on the scope of anything that they were doing. You obviously graduated from high school when you then moved to Washington, or did you just help your uncle out during the summers and when he needed help? How did that come about? I lived in Wyoming until I was 18, and I actually went to school in Ohio first. So it was after going to school in Ohio and moving here and there and a whole number of different places that I eventually just washed up in Portland. And that's when I really started engaging with the wine industry. So I have to ask, where in Ohio did you go to school? I went to Oberlin College. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. One of my choices as well. I ended up going to school in Ohio as well, in Denison, ah. Denison and Granville. So, okay. Yeah. Small world. Yeah. As we just said earlier, before we started recording. So you end up in Portland mm-hmm. and you've obviously been introduced, thanks to your uncle, to wine. Mm-hmm. Did you know from that point on that you would pursue education, higher education to become a winemaker? Or tell me a little bit about what came next after your early introduction. I knew that education was the way that I wanted to go to get into the wine industry. I knew that you needed a hands-on experience, but I just kind of had the sense that I'll be able to go farther faster if I get an education and really get to know the nuts and bolts of what's happening chemically and microbiologically. It was never really a question to me to like try and be a cellar rat and work my way up from there. I knew that I wanted to work in this cellar, but I I wanted to have the education behind that. Tell me a little bit about that journey, that educational journey. You often hear that people get bitten by the wine bug because of the romance, right? And all the trappings that come with it. And then they enroll into university and they realize that it's a very heavily scientific field as well. Tell me a little bit about that. I really got into it because I just liked physically doing the work. Previous to that, I had worked as a writer, and I hated sitting in front of a computer screen and just staring at it all day. So I knew that there was science behind it. I didn't quite know the extent, but I was excited that there was something that I could engage my brain and my senses and be moving around. All of those things came together. I enrolled in a program in school, and obviously, Having come from a writing background, I didn't really have the science behind it. So my first term, I was in intro biology, intro chemistry, calculus, and some other science class. And I was just spending all of my time doing math and science homework. And I was like, God, this is fun. I wish somebody had told me that science was so much fun earlier on because I didn't really experience it that way in high school. And when I got to college, and was just in labs and like learning these things. And I always liked doing math problems, but it was just so much fun. So I didn't really think about like, I don't know, it didn't seem like too much work. It was just like solving fun problems all day. So you often hear also the winemakers make these lifelong connections and relationships with other winemakers. What was your, the class that you went through with? Did you find that to be true for you as well? I don't know. Actually, my friends that I felt closest to when I was in school are a cheesemaker and a beer maker. So yeah, I don't know. (laughs) 
those are probably more fun because then you can really round out a nice evening, right? You have it's true. someone who knows cheese, someone who knows beer. And as they say, it takes a lot of good beer to make great wine. Yeah. So you graduate from university with a winemaking degree, analogy degree, I take it. Mm-hmm. What comes next? Where do you end up? Well, I had worked at Alexana Winery interning while I was in school, and they're very small, very boutique. And I knew that I wanted a different experience than that. And Oregon State has a very good relationship with E&J Gallo, particularly their research sectors, their research divisions. So my advisor had said, well, E&J Gallo is coming in January. Why don't you interview with them? So I asked a friend of mine who had interned there the year before, a few years before, and I said, okay, where within Gallo would you have wanted to intern? And he told me, oh, by far, I would have liked to work at the pilot plant. So I interviewed with them and said, okay, I want to work at the pilot winery. And apparently, I learned later on, you don't get a lot of people saying, I want to work at the pilot winery, because research winery just sounds so much cooler. But it was really just the perfect fit for me to start going when they offered me the position. I just loved being there. I loved putting in all the long hours and executing research projects. It was a great fit for me. When someone thinks about winemaking, they often don't think about the research aspect of it. And in your bio, it says that you're a research winemaker, which piqued my interest. Tell me a little bit, what does a research winemaker do? What do you focus on? At Gallo, they have a number of researchers who they'll think about, okay, we have these style targets that we want to hit. We know the consumers are looking for wines that taste like this or like that. What's a way that we could try and see to make that happen? Is it by utilizing this particular ingredient in a way that might activate a different chemical pathway in the yeast? Or is it simply changing the fermentation temperature a few degrees. So all those projects will get set up and you'll work as the research winemaker, work with that researcher to figure out, okay, how are we going to execute that here at the pilot winery? And really just go from there. So then when harvest hits, you've got everything lined up, ready to go. You know what grapes you're going to be asking for and about how long it'll take so you can just bam, 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 knock out as many research projects as possible in that short amount of time that you have. So it sounds like a perfect project for you. As you said, in university, you really love the whole analytical side to things. Must have been a very, is it very analytical or is there a piece of art to being a research winemaker as well? The artistic part is once you've completed these trials, you have your control and all of the different treatments Well, then you smell and taste them and figure out, okay, did we actually hit a target with any of these? What can we push further next year? It's tasting and smelling the results that really is the art of it. That's great. And you enjoyed it? It sounds like you enjoyed it quite a bit. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Is it probably a great opportunity to really hone your craft and really have a deep understanding as to what's going on when wine is being made, right? So... Do you find that to be the case? Do you think you're a better winemaker today because you had the opportunity to be a research winemaker? Absolutely. Yeah. You really get the chance to see how just changing one minor thing in the process can ultimately radically affect the final product. And that in and of itself is really eye-opening. It can be the smallest thing, something that doesn't cost you any money at all, just tweaking one tiny aspect 
and you get an entirely different wine. So it really gives you a lot of tools moving forward when you're thinking about, okay, we're going to make this particular wine, say a Sauvignon Blanc, and we want it to be citrusy. What are the ways that I know that that can happen? And let's make it happen that way. After you leave Gallo, you end up probably in what most people would consider, uninformed people would consider, a strange place to be making wine. Mm-hmm. Arizona. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not one of the areas that pops into the forefront of most wine consumers' minds when you think about wine. Tell me what attracted you to want to make wines in Arizona. Actually, Arizona had been on my radar since I was in school. My partner and I have both lived in Arizona at various points in our lives. And one spring break, we went down and toured around and tasted wines in the area and spoke with winemakers in Arizona, just because I knew I wanted to eventually wind up there someday. Maybe not for the long term, you never know, but I knew I wanted to be back in Arizona. And it was really through talking with them and tasting the wines and understanding this is a region that is under the radar. It's unexplored. They're doing interesting, weird things here. And that's something that really appeals to me as being on the margins in winemaking and finding out what are the boundaries and what are the borders of what you can achieve and what you can do. Arizona as a region was something that really had intrigued me for quite a while. It's interesting. I mean, you echo something that I once heard when I went to a lecture at Bordeaux University and Denis Depardieu, the late Denis Depardieu, Mm. said that the best wines are really made at the extremes of viticulture. So where you push the grape to its extreme. So could be that Arizona is that one of those cases. Yeah, I mean, remains to be seen. We don't make a lot of wine, so it doesn't really get out there much. I understand it. Consumers can find it frustrating to not be able to access some of the wines that they hear about. And the fact of the matter is, like, we just are, we're limited and we're in a very remote location. So, yeah, it's a weird place to be. So I'd love to know a little bit more about your journey to Arizona. Do you go looking for Arizona or does Arizona go looking for you? Well, it's a little bit of both. I was at a point in my career at Gallo where I was thinking I probably needed to make a change. And as much as I loved what I was doing and I loved the people that I was working with, there were some other circumstances that necessitated me looking for another position. And I just happened to go on wine jobs and see that there was a posting for an Arizona winemaker. It was like 10 p.m. at night. I'd just finished up something else for work. And I said to myself, I better apply for this right now. Otherwise, I'm not going to. I'm just going to let it languish. I won't write the cover letter. So I just did it. I knocked out a cover letter, sent off my resume, got a call the next day and had a quick interview and it went from there. They didn't say what winery it was when I applied. I said to myself, I bet I can figure out which Arizona winery this is in 30 minutes or less. And I did. (laughs) (laughs) How did you figure it out? It was the wording in their job posting. They mentioned like having a state-of-the-art lab, et cetera. And so I just like searched state-of-the-art lab, Arizona wine, and found it. Yeah. The Google gods delivered. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's easy. (laughs) So the name of the winery that you work for is Eridus. Mm -hmm. And again, you said state-of-the-art, and it seems to be a state-of-the-art operation. Talk to me a little bit about what makes Eridus unique in the landscape of Arizona and what sets it maybe apart from 
the other wineries operating in Arizona? From the outset, uh, Scott and Joan, the owners, had conceived of the place as a custom crush facility. So at the time, the Eridus brand wasn't as big as it is now. And they really wanted to have a place where people who were just getting started in the Arizona wine industry could bring their grapes, have them fermented. So they really invested quite a bit in having all of the modern winemaking amenities. So we have obviously glycol jacketed tanks, anything that you would expect to see in a Napa winery that you don't necessarily always see in Arizona wineries because most wineries are making very small volumes of wine and don't necessarily, it's hard to invest in a glycol system if what you're producing is 10 tons worth of wine per year. They were able to bring in a number of wineries that were just getting started, uh, have those wines made, and then they eventually, these wine brands were able to move out and build their own facilities and really carry that with them. It's a good breeding ground for smaller wineries that are looking to get a start without having to put out that initial investment in all of the equipment. Almost sounds like an incubator for Arizona brands, if you will. Sure, yeah. The winery was designed, I mean, you look on wine jobs, you find this posting, you figure out who it is, Mm -hmm. you get a call the next day. How does the interview process go? Are they like, we've hit the jackpot, we found, we've built this amazing facility, and now we've found this amazing winemaker? Or was there a bit of a courtship? Tell me a bit how this relationship came to be. It took a little bit of time. I had a work trip planned, so I was out of the country for a little bit of time there in between the initial contact. And then I had a phone interview with Scott and Joan, and then eventually flew out and toured the facility. And and that's when they offered me the position. So all in all, it took about a month and a half. I think they'd had a little bit of turnover in terms of winemakers in Arizona, just because for one reason or another, it's a very rural location and it's a lot more remote than a lot of people really think about. So when you go to Wilcox, there's almost nothing there. The closest town is or big town is Tucson, and that's 83 miles away. So it can be really an isolating experience. But I think having grown up in Wyoming, I'm really used to long distances and lots of nothingness. So it was kind of just what I was looking for. I think since I wasn't put off by anything in the Wilcox area and they were looking for somebody with experience like my own, it just worked out. How did they end up in Wilcox? It sounds like they invested quite a bit of money in the state-of-the-art facility and are passionate about making great wines. And not to disparage Arizona in any way, but most of those kind of people end up in Napa, in Sonoma, or in the Willamette Valley, Uh or maybe in Washington State. How did they end up in Arizona? Because I understand they're not originally from Arizona. No, uh, they're Canadian. And Joan is a doctor, so she had actually been working here in Napa, in the Napa area for many years, and they grew to love wine while they were here in Napa. And then Joan was offered a position in the Scottsdale, Phoenix area. From what I hear, it was too good to turn down, so they packed up and moved to the Phoenix area, and after a few years there, they realized, oh, there's this nascent wine industry here. And they had always thought that they would like to have, be involved in the wine industry in some way, maybe have a winery. And they realized, oh, it's right here on our doorstep. We can do it here. Great. Yeah. 
talk to me a little bit about what does the terroir, what is the soil, what is the macro climate of the Wilcox area look like? Trying to get a sense for what makes it a place worthy to grow grapevines, because there's a lot of surface area in the world, and there's a lot of places where you just don't grow grapes. What makes Wilcox unique? It's a really interesting little pocket in Arizona. It's a lot of the soils are sandy loam, loamy sand. So they're pretty well, they're free draining soils for the most part. And most of the year it's quite dry. So we don't face a lot of disease pressure. So we don't really have too much fungal disease. And it's also extremely high elevation. So I believe the Wilcox AVA most of the vineyards within that are sitting around 4,000 to 4,300 feet. And then where our estate vineyards are located, it's even higher elevation, 5,200 feet at the foot of the Chiricahuas. And the soils themselves tend a bit towards alkalinity. So a lot of the growers will wind up amending their soil over a period of years to bring that pH down a bit. But we don't really face too much in terms of diseases, and it's pretty easy for the most part for the vines to penetrate that soil. It does require drip irrigation just because it's so dry there for so much of the year. But the Wilcox area luckily does have an aquifer, and so it's not too difficult to get to water to provide that to the vines. So if you had to compare it to maybe some of the other wine-growing regions across the world, what would you compare it to as a point of reference for, for the listeners? I think for me, one of the closest comparisons would be the Mendoza, Argentina area. It's a similar latitude and it's also similarly high elevation. And something about that elevation, I mean, of course, you get the cooler nights that temper the hot days, but you also get something different in terms of how the grapes react to the UV light because you just get so much more of it. At that elevation, you have less atmosphere for it to penetrate through. I haven't really done too much looking into that, but I think it does have an effect. What kind of grapes do well here in the Wilcox AVA? Is it the usual suspects, Cabernet, Chardonnay, or talk a little bit about what is planted there and the styles of wines that are produced from? There seems to be a little bit of everything planted in the Wilcox area. Certainly, there's a lot of Southern Rhone varieties, and I really love the Syrah that's coming out of the Wilcox area. Iberian varieties, we're seeing a lot of that being planted, so your Tempranillo, your Graciano. And then in terms of whites, we see a fair amount of Pic Pool Blanc. Malvasia Bianca is a big one. It just seems to do really well. It's got those very pretty floral aromatics, and they just pop coming from the Wilcox AVA. Everybody's experimenting, and that's part of what's pretty exciting about it. Personally, I'm a huge fan of, obviously, the Sauvignon Blanc, the Malvasia Bianca in terms of whites. I think those are two that do really well, one that people will recognize and draw them in, and one that once we've hooked them with the Sauv Blanc, we can say, have you heard of Malvasia? Try this. And then, like I said, I love the Syrah in the area. And while... I think the Tempranillos are lovely. I actually much prefer the Graciano just because it's a little bit easier to manage in the winery and it produces just these brilliantly colored wines that are so aromatic. And I think it just has a little more interesting stuff going on than the Tempranillos, but they're going to crucify me for saying that. <laughs> it's really a lovely wine. I'm fortunate enough to have a glass in front of me here and just some really nice floral characteristic to yeah. it. 
as well and really impressive wine, as is the Sauvignon Blanc, which is very refreshing. And again, never had a Sauvignon Blanc from Arizona, but if this is the benchmark, I'll definitely have be trying more. What are the challenges in viticulture in this area besides, obviously, irrigation? You mentioned that mm-hmm. already. What other challenges do you face? I think a big one is it's actually temperature, both the heat and the cold. So we could face very late spring frosts, which can affect flowering, bud break, all sorts of crucial points in the grapevine's development. And because it's so hot in the summer, you really do have to be on top of your irrigation game to make sure that the grapes are getting the the water that they need. Certain varieties, because the sunlight is so intense, are a little bit prone to bleaching. So Grenache in the area doesn't tend to develop too much color. And I understand that's a challenge everywhere with Grenache, but it's every year I'm, I'm trying and trying to make a darker Grenache, which not the Grenache needs to be dark, but the customers kind of want a little bit of, they want their red wines to be red. That's another big challenge is figuring out how to best manage the vines so that you get both the aromatics and the color when necessary. Right now, actually, it's the start of the monsoon season. So we do get these storms that move in. And because we're in a basin and range area, you'll get all of this moisture that comes in. You'll see thunderclouds build over the day. And then you'll just get a pounding rain for anywhere from five minutes to half an hour, even longer sometimes. And that amount of water, generally, you don't see the vines uptaking that. You don't see a lot of burst berries as a result. But you want it to dry off in between those events, which happen every couple of days for starting from about July 4th through beginning to mid-September. So that's certainly something challenging. It can really affect when you wind up picking grapes. So you mentioned picking grapes. Tell me a little bit about what does the growing season look like? When does it kick off? When are you harvesting? What does a typical yearly cycle look like? I wasn't there for flowering this year, so I can't really tell you what's typical in Arizona since I've been there for two years at this point. So I'm just starting to kind of track when do we typically see these events. Mm -hmm. But in terms of picking, we generally kick off mid-July. So I'm expecting once I get back to Arizona, probably the next week we'll be bringing in our first whites, Sauvignon Blanc. And the growing season actually is quite long because we have so many different varieties. So we are usually pressing our last load of reds in mid-October. So it's pretty extended in terms of... Yeah, that's a long, long time to be in the cellar. It is. Yeah. You just cut back. You travel quite a bit. I'm tired of it. (laughs) (laughs) You just traveled halfway around the world, and I think you spent a harvest in, uh, you said Adelaide. Is that correct? Adelaide Hills? Clare Valley. Clare Valley. Okay. Tell me, how did that come about? You're making wines in Arizona, and then you travel halfway around the world, and you're making wines in Australia. Tell me a little bit about that experience and how it might shape what's to come. I finished up harvest last year, and was kind of thinking to myself, okay, what do I do now? I mean, I know we've got bottling, but... It's not absolutely necessary that I be here in the winery for everything that's happening in the next few months. And I had never actually done a Southern Hemisphere harvest before. So I asked Scott, how would you feel about me taking a few months and going to New Zealand or Australia? 
And he was thrilled. He said, sure, go for it. So it was really nice to have that flexibility to be able to go out and do something new, hopefully learn something and bring it back. So I started applying for positions, harvest winemaking positions in both New Zealand and Australia. And I had hoped to go to New Zealand just because I didn't want to be away for too long. But I wound up interviewing for the position at Kerry Hill in the Clare Valley, and they offered it to me pretty quickly. And so I love Riesling, and I know they make some really fantastic Syrah in the area. So I took it, and in January this year, headed down south. Uh, I was there for three months. It was interesting because it was a medium-sized winery. I had worked very small wineries, and Gallo, a very large winery. And this was like being at a mini Gallo. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, these tanks are so cute, but they're also so much bigger than the ones that I work with now. And... I mean, it's kind of winemaking everywhere you go. You know what's how the steps go. You bring in the grapes, you crush the grapes, you put them in tank, you inoculate, et cetera, et cetera. But it was nice to be on a winemaking team again and working with a new winemaker and a senior winemaker and learning a new system, seeing how is it that they get things done around here. How are you going to approach this harvest differently, having had this experience? Uh, well... I had never worked with sort of a compressed air pump over system before. So they have a number of tanks where they have the ability to do a a pump over using either nitrogen or compressed air. And I had utilized oxygen at various points in the winemaking process before. But at the times when we're really crunched, oh my gosh, it would save us so much time and just give people a little break to be able to actually do a pump over just using some compressed air. So I'm definitely going to be utilizing that since it's something that we were kind of doing anyway. I think it'll just give everybody a little bit of a mental break. So there's that. And they also would get their whites ready for bottling pretty much immediately as soon as they were done with fermentation. Whereas I was pretty used to, okay, the whites are they're done enough, and now we have to focus on the reds. So kind of utilizing some of the tools that I learned there to just like knock them out and get them ready so we don't have to think about them. I don't have to try and cast my mind back to, okay, what was it that we did in beginning of August? All right, what do I still have to do now when it's mid-October? What do you think the biggest misconceptions are about the Arizona wine industry? What would you like to set straight about making wines or wines coming from Arizona? Well, aside from the fact that nobody even knows that we have a wine industry, the fact that it's not too hot, we can make really refreshing whites and not all the wines are heavy alcoholic bombs. They're not all grandma wines that are fortified and sweet. I guess just that we are able to make quality wines and you kind of have to taste them in order to believe it. Yeah. But we have the soils, we do have the climate, and we can do it. So, Where are these wines? Obviously, I can imagine there's a lot of local consumption, right? Phoenix, Absolutely. Scottsdale area. And I think the winery does have a tasting room in, in Scottsdale, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. What are the plans? Are the plans to hopefully have these on a national stage? Or is the focus really to just supply local consumption? We're in an interesting position in that 
we get a lot of snowbirds in Arizona. So we'll get people come down, taste in the tasting room, join the wine club in the winter, and then they'll go back to, say, Michigan or New York or wherever they came from in the summer and want us to be sending them wines there. So to some extent, we're looking to be branching out and making sure that we can get wines to the folks that really want them. But it's always a challenge. So we're kind of walking this tightrope of, okay, we're selling really well in the tasting room and we can sell what we're making in the tasting room, but we do have some demand that's a little bit further afield. So we're still kind of working that out right now. So it sounds like from what I've read in our conversations that it's probably accurate to say that no expense has been spared in crafting these wines, right? You have a state-of-the-art facility, you have a state-of-the-art lab, which they called out specifically in the ad, (laughs) and also the design of the winery, right, is quite modern and state-of-the-art as well, the architectural design. Is this just a passion project or is this, do Scott and Joanne see something there that others haven't seen? Because up until this point, a lot of the wineries in Arizona have been more restrained projects. So tell me a little bit about what do they see? What do you see? What do they see about this area and about Arizona that people should be aware of? I don't know if I can speak for them on this one. Sure. Maybe tell me, what do you see? What excites you about Arizona? Because it appears that you've made some very strategic decisions in your career, right? You must see something here. What is it that gets you excited out of bed every morning and into the winery and saying, I'm going to make a great wine here? For me, I think it's really the fact that we can make a big splash. We can really make a bold statement with these wines from Arizona, Because nobody expects anything from us. When we don't have anything on the national stage, when we're so unknown, I can really do whatever I want within reason, but I'm always looking to make an excellent wine. With an eye towards doing that, I don't really have the pressure of delivering on like a 98-point wine year after year. What I have is the ability to play around, find out what's working, try new things, adjust from year to year to make a better bottle of wine, and really just continue to please our customers. So having that freedom is really what brought me there. You've seen our lineup. We've got so many different varieties, so many different wines, and I'm a glutton for punishment. I set up so many different trials and lots every year just to see, okay, Does this yeast like this grape better right now? What are we going to be doing moving forward to just keep pushing that winemaking envelope and really just craft the best wine that we can? That sounds great. I think there's, especially if you look at the old world model where a winemaker doesn't have that flexibility, right? If they're making wines in Burgundy, they know it's going to be Pinot Noir and they know it's going to come from this defined lot. And it seems like you have the opportunity to a great extent to define the style and define the opportunity. So... I think probably in an enviable position to be in. What's next for you? This obviously is a big challenge, Uh but you strike me as a person that has big plans and (laughs) is in constant forward motion. What do you see as next for you? We want to do sparkling. (laughs) Talk to me about that. Tell me a little bit about your vision for that. So I mentioned my travails with Grenache. I really think that we have an opportunity with Grenache because we get Last year, the Grenache had just terrible color, 
but it smelled and tasted the best out of any of the red wines that we made. And my thinking on this one is we bring it in a little bit earlier and we make the best damn rosé sparkling that we can in this area. So we actually, we started bringing in some rosé early last year at about 19 bricks and fermenting it out, not letting it pick up much color. And so we're really starting to build some base wines for blending so that we can start to put together an interesting sparkling program. That sounds exciting. So you are a glutton for punishment. And how many wines do you make currently? (laughs) I don't know how many we have in bottle, but I did 64 different lots last year. Okay. It's a lot. So what's your crew? What does your crew look like? There's obviously you. And who do you have helping you take this Herculean task on? Uh, We have our operations manager who oversees all of the equipment and the systems. We have a cellar manager. We have a bottling operator who helps us out during harvest. And we have a guy who used to work at the hardware store and at the telephone company. He retired and he's like, I just want to be in the wine industry. So he helps us out three days a week. (laughs) We're a ragtag crew, but it's fun. So I got four other people helping me. We can do it. <laughs> That's great. I love your can-do attitude. What wines are you drinking personally? What wines excite you? What wines do you draw inspiration from? Oh, gosh. I drink the weirdest stuff. I really like sherry. <laughs> so I've been drinking. I really like the Tio Diego and the Innocente from... Oh, I'm blanking on the name of this winery right now. I like sherry just because it's so strange and... The flavors that you get are so interesting, spans so many different styles. And so I love drinking sherry. And honestly, I drink a lot of cool climate wines just because I'm making hot climate wines. So I really love a good Riesling. I had a really interesting Bulgarian Pinot the other day. I couldn't tell who the producer was off the top of my head. But I just look for... I usually walk into the wine shop and ask the guy, like, okay, what weird stuff do you have in right now? And so he'll take me to, like, the Eastern European section, say, oh, this one's new and it's really weird. Try this. So That's great. Sounds like you drink as adventurously as you make wine, so they seem to fit hand in hand. Yeah, I try to. Great. Well, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. We look forward to your tasting tomorrow and tasting some of these, a small representation of 64 lots of wines. But the two that you brought with you today, the Sauvignon Blanc and the Graciano, were absolutely revelations as far as Arizona are concerned. As I mentioned, my first taste of Arizona wines happened at the Grand Canyon and was disappointing to say the least. But you brought some fantastic wines that have reaffirmed my faith in Arizona. So I look forward to having you share these with our guests tomorrow. I'm looking forward to it, too. Yeah. Lisa, thanks so much. Good luck. And we look forward to having you on the show again real soon. Thanks. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week on the Stories Behind Wine. If you would like to suggest an interview subject or show topic, please email us at sbh at napavalleywineacademy.com. Again, that email address is sbh at napavalleywineacademy.com. If you like what you've heard, we hope that you'll visit our website, NapaValleyWineAcademy.com forward slash podcast and share us with your friends and colleagues. We'd also really appreciate a positive review on iTunes. It really helps out. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous episodes. 
and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. Join us next time for another episode of the stories behind wine. Until then, thank you for listening.